You're listening to Tabletop and Beyond with your host, Justin. But before we get started, how was your geek week? And co-hosts, Dan and Jason. You have to be willing to let the dice help you tell the story. Okay, look, this year, I'm going to stop mispronouncing words. Join us as we cover board games to war games and beyond. And welcome back to Tabletop and Beyond. I am your host, Justin. I'm here with Dan and Jason. Hey, how's it going? Greetings. So, a little bit of a different thing for us this morning, guys. Uh, Yes, we're recording in the morning, not in the evening, because we have a very special guest with us. We're very excited to welcome him. He is the co-founder and CEO of Free League Publishing. He's also the lead designer of some of the hottest RPGs right now, like the Alien RPG that came out. And overall, a gamer among gamers, uh, welcome Tomas Herrenstam. Thank you very much, and thank you for rearranging your schedules on my account. <laughs> no, so uh, part of that is uh, where you are, right? Uh, you are not here in the U.S. We usually have a lot of guests here in the United States, but um, you are not among us. That's right. I'm in sunny, well, for today anyway, Stockholm, Sweden. That's very cool. Um, we don't hear a lot of stuff coming out of Sweden in terms of RPGs, but we look at your uh, table. We look at your free league publishing. You guys have been putting out quite a bit lately. Yeah, it's been an interesting couple of years. I mean, we started out about ten years ago, but in the first couple of years, it was very low, uh, low key, and we did games mostly in Swedish. But then we started doing stuff on in English on the uh, US and UK, you know, and, and and it just kind of took off from there. And the last couple of years have been uh, been busy. That's that's awesome. We're we we want to get into talking about free league publishing, your your zero system, and obviously we want to talk about Blade Runner, which is the uh, probably the most talked about thing I've been seeing on social media and RPGs right now. So, but first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I started playing RPGs back in the 80s. That was a big wave of, of RPGs. Uh, that was a big thing uh, in, in Sweden in the 80s. Uh, there was a bunch of Swedish games in Swedish that came out then, and, and it became hugely, hugely popular, and everybody you know, in my generation played it. I'm born in the mid-70s. So that started out like a lot of other people back then, and then just never quite left the world of RPGs. I did other stuff for a living for a while, but but uh, I never left RPGs as such. And now I'm back in, uh, well, in full force, uh, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, you are definitely deep into it. I I was uh, looking through your guys' website the other day, and you know the amount of credits that you have. Uh, one of the things that surprised me was that you were a producer on the Tales of the Loop. Um, art book that came out. Yeah, that was one of the stuff, one of the things we did early on uh, that uh, we did not only RPGs but also art books. And we did these art books by Simon Stallenhag, who's a Swedish uh, artist and, 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 and author who did these. Uh, he started out just doing art that kind of online and just posted it online and it kind of took off from there. That was. Well, it's close to 10 years ago now he started doing his thing. And then uh, we met up with him and, and uh, we put out his work in the form of art books. The first one was Tales from the Loop. Uh, and that turned into an RPG that we made. And then that thing turned into even a TV series on Amazon Prime just, you know, a couple of, like two years ago now or something. So it kind of, uh, yeah, we were started working with Simon very early on. Yeah, that was a gorgeous, gorgeous set of artwork. We we saw that. We were blown away. And, of course, we tracked the show as well. It was very good. That's great that you contributed. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, um, yeah and that kind of you know led to, I think, the Tales from the Loop uh, cooperation with Simon, I think, was uh, and the RPG that kind of uh, went well. And I think we had some, some good time, you know, good luck with the timing also because that game came out 
shortly after Stranger Things uh, started, uh, you know, the first season came out and that was just a good uh, coincidence, really. We had no idea, but uh, and, and but it, it that game, Tales from the Loop RPG, I think um, went well and, and I think that opened some doors for us. Happened after. Yeah, Road the Tales of, you know, Stranger Things is kind of reinvigoration of... Um, uh, you know, uh, following youth through their, you know, yeah. uh, fantastical adventures. Uh, it reminded me a lot of, not Tales from the Loop, but um, uh, Stranger Things reminded me of, you know, kind of more of a, a modern uh, horror style of like Goonies, where you had right. this group of kids that had this really awesome, you know, synergy or uh, uh, chemistry uh, between each other, but also had this experience outside of the norm of the adult world. Yeah. Uh, and then Tales from the Loop, you know, was gives that real sense of awe of like that alternate uh, world of where things could have gone and the mystique behind it. So really cool art, really cool that you're involved in the book um, and also uh, the art book and also the RPG behind it. So that, you got you got a lot of good stuff on your uh, on your resume list there. Some things you've been involved in. Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, been busy. Thanks. <laughs> well, uh, before we get too much further into the show, uh, let's uh, talk about Geek Week. Uh, Jason, how was your Geek Week? You know, my Geek Week was good. I finished a book called The Star is My Destination. This was Alfred Bester. This is a 1956 book um, that uh, really good book. I think it's one of those that a lot of people haven't heard of. Uh, a lot of a lot of people in kind of the geek world have heard of like William Gibson's Neuromancer, which people could argue set the stage for, uh, you know, a lot of cyberpunk that came uh, later. It was in, that obviously was influenced by, you know, the do androids dream of electric sheep and Blade Runner. But the stars, my destination is credited by a lot of those authors. This is a 1956 book credited by a lot of those authors about influencing what they how they viewed cyberpunk in that world. Uh, so I'm not going to give too much about it, uh, but it does involve, you know, basically a, a guy who's lost out in space after a shipwreck. He's, he's trapped in his shipwreck for about six months, um, and the ship comes by to try to pick him up, or uh, it comes by and he's like, yes, somebody's going to rescue me, and the ship stops, looks at him, and then decides, nah, we're not going to pick you up, and keeps going, and it just brews this, like, frustration and hatred in him that drives <laughs> him uh, insane, and he eventually finds his way back to the systems, starts and creates a giant empire just for the sake of finding this one ship to destroy it because it left him stranded uh, uh, when he was out in space. So it has very much kind of a, uh, if you've read Red Rising series recently, okay, it has a little bit of that feel to it. So I would argue that you know Red Rising potentially was influenced uh, by this book as well. Um, really, really good book. Uh, and the What's and final thing I'll say on it, written in 1956, you wouldn't tell that by reading it. Like uh, Alfred Bester, when he wrote this book, he wrote in a very good, uh, timeless way, so that even though it feels very futuristic, um, uh, kind of that cyberish punk feel, you know, the, the dystopian world where everyone has new high tech with them, but their lives still kind of suck. Um, it uh, it it feels like it could be our future still. Uh, so really, really interesting book. Highly recommend uh, to checking it out. Very good. Very good. Uh, Tomas, how was your geek week? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's been so, I'm so, you know, so geeked out that I, it's hard to keep you know track of everything <laughs> since it's, you know, it's what I do all, all day and most nights too. But one thing that kind of, I mean, just, you know, just doing all of this, with Blade Runner is, of course, you know, it really, uh, you know, and that is that has been most of my geek week, and I think that kind of, right. I guess, qualifies Obviously. in a sense. But I've done some <laughs> other stuff as well. But it's also, I'm afraid to say, a bit work related or you know, free league related is is that we're doing a new edition of the original first Swedish RPG that came out in 1982, a fantasy game called Drakar och Demoner, which is roughly translates to dragons and demons. So you can imagine where that inspiration from that name came from. But anyway, uh, so we're <laughs> actually working on a new version of that old game. And that's been, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, you know, not only nostalgia driven, actually we're trying to do something new with it, but it's still, of course, just a, you know, kind of a fun thing to be doing just to revisit 
that like the original uh, in at, at least where we're concerned is that the um the game that you're talking about that you started playing in the 80s was that the one game that got you into it uh that was actually my second game uh, my f- okay. first one was was another swedish game called mutant and that's our we actually did a version of mutant uh eight years ago now that is mutant year zero which is uh and like the latest installment of that game so uh yeah, right now we're kind of we have made new editions of, of both the the two like main original Swedish RPGs, which were of course highly highly influenced by by uh, American RPGs that came before it. Oh, very cool. Uh, I I wish that I could read in Swedish because <laughs> this would be a cool uh, cool game. But uh, it sounds like it's going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good, Dan. How was your Geek Week, buddy? Oh, I had a lot going on. The one thing that was totally unexpected and awesome and cool, we went to Disney California Adventure less than a week ago, and I was really blown away by the Avengers campus. And I wasn't expecting to because if, you, if you're familiar with Disneyland or Disney properties, there's just a lot of concrete and buildings. I mean, there's really two rides. One is the ride that they redid. They turned uh, Tower of Terror, which used to be Twilight Zone theme, and, and they turned it into Gardens of the Galaxy. That was a great ride. And then there's a Spider-Man ride where you're on a machine and you're using your own hands to play a video game. There's no controllers. There's no gun or anything. So you're you know doing the Spider-Man hand mo- motion to fire a web and to, to attack targets to help Spider-Man out, which is pretty fun but the cool thing about the campus that i was not expecting at all is just how alive it is with like marvel superheroes so if you know if you spend any time on disney you know that okay there's a princess there's one princess over there and she's only going to be there for 45 minutes and they try to process as many little kids through getting a photo with that princess as they can and then they disappear and so forth and so on the difference is all of the major tentpole heroes are wandering around the Avengers campus and they're not all monitored by Disney personnel that are like controlling who gets to see who, right? So like gaggles of people will form up around Loki and uh, or Captain America or Spider-Man and they, they have this way of moving around the campus that keeps it real lively and energetic. So when I went there, I was not expecting to have had to talk to Iron Man and talk to Spider-Man and talk to Thor, and for as long as we did, which was really, really cool. So if you're in California <laughs> and you go to Disneyland, California Adventure, check it out because uh, it was it was great fun. And the other thing is that in Disney, you get used to the little kids getting excited about like the princesses or maybe, you know, Mickey Mouse or the characters in like, the big costumes. At Avengers Campus, it's the grown adults chasing, <laughs> chasing the Marvel heroes all around and like smiling from ear to ear and gushing like they're talking to the real hero. And that was that was unexpected and cool and fun. So. Uh, if you know you look at the photos online, doesn't really uh, you get a feeling that there's heroes there and they have a cool Quinjet and they have these cool buildings and some cool rides. But what's really fun about it is, you know, really interacting with the Avengers. And I had no I had no expectation that that would be part of the fun when we when we uh, bought tickets for Disney. So that was a that was a big tent pole of my Geek Week. Very That's good. Awesome. Very good. I could see you, Dan, just, uh, you know, excited as a schoolgirl out there. Well, and you find yourself, like, really kind of getting into it, right? And and it really helps that they've done some really nice casting. Like, we ran into Doctor Strange two or three times and made jokes, and he was just as smart as Benedict Cumberbatch was with comebacks and stuff like that. Nice. Um, and that was kind of kind of cool. And they had, like, you know really attractive women for <laughs> these female characters and you're like hey guys maybe we should go over and talk to natasha black widow maybe we should <laughs> she's over there and yeah maybe maybe that's who we need to talk to my my daughters talked to with wanda because the the new she, wanda um the um uh what, what's her name the, the, the red, scarlet uh, witch yeah, scarlet, scarlet witch. witch yeah she um 
she's she's a major character in the last movie that just came out and i tell you that wanda stood there and talked with my daughters for like it felt like almost 10 minutes so uh it was wild times i i I really uh really enjoyed it um didn't didn't expect to have it be so gleeful and fun especially for a bunch of you know cynical adults um (laughs) so uh, i'm giving it two wildly enthusiastic thumbs up very good very good uh, let's see. My Geek Week was dominated by painting a whole bunch of gaming terrain um, for the upcoming Warhammer Warcry event that I'm going to be running uh, next weekend. Uh, or I guess it's in two weeks. It's in two weeks. Uh, but uh, it's been fun because I get, with terrain, like, you know, I've got so much of it that I'm trying out different techniques. Like, I decided to do like oil washes on it instead of your traditional acrylic washes and I've uh, been messing around with kind of the grim dark stuff that we see from our previous uh, Gazette Cascagoon uh, right Kenan Oates mm-hmm. um, so I've been messing around so, with some grim dark stuff and oil washes and um, it you know it's it's interesting because like that's a good time to like experiment with some of your painting techniques and and uh, you know it's a lot of fun because you mess up terrain and it's okay because I mean terrain's supposed to just kind of be the backdrop for your game anyway, right? So mm, yeah. um, it's a great it's a great opportunity to try out different things. Uh, Tomas, do you play any like wargaming stuff? Or are you into like all RPGs? Some, yeah. I mean, I think uh, there are definitely others in Freely that are deeper into that stuff. We have just where I'm mm-hmm. sitting now, like boxes and boxes and of stuff all around me of uh, miniatures and, and things. Some of them use the office for, you know, because they don't have enough space at home for doing this stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I suspect these are not all freely. So there's <laughs> yeah. definitely that a lot of that going around. Personally, I, I did some, uh, sure, but I, I mostly like Warhammer and things like that. But uh, yeah, and not not that much. There are some others who are, you know, deeper into it than me. Yeah, we've got um, a couple of segments that we have on the show. Um, you know, we have our our, uh, our normal podcast segments that are talk about board games, RPGs, things like that. Um, and uh, we've got two other segments. It's our, like, Warhammer, where we talk a lot about Age of Sigmar and other Warhammer stuff. And then specifically dedicated Warhammer Warcry, which is their Age of Sigmar skirmish game. Um, and, uh, you know, we really like that. So I'm going to be running an event like I said, in two weeks for the Warhammer skirmish, but I just need to have enough tables with terrain to, you know, host 16 people. So it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be good stuff. So, uh, yeah, sounds like we all had uh, some pretty great geek weeks. Um, Tomas, sounds like yours was much more uh, action-filled than the rest of us, <laughs> but, uh, you know, given given your position, uh, I think that's to be expected. So um, let's get in. Let's get into it a little bit. We um, we want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Free League Publishing, um, your your mechanics of the Year Zero system that you guys have, and then we want to save the meat of Blade Runner for the end, which we're very excited to talk about. So you told us that you guys are based out of Sweden, um, and you've been around um, for you said about ten years. Is that about right? Yeah, uh, technically. I mean, we started out. That's even longer ago. Uh, as just a bunch of, of people who did, we didn't really know each other from way back. We met up on, on basically a forum dedicated to an RPG publisher that we all enjoyed the games from and started doing some freelancing just for fun. And this is yeah, more than 10 years ago. And then uh, that company, uh, I can get back to those, but they, they went out of business and they asked us if we wanted to take over some of the uh, stuff they were doing. And that's when we kind of decided to form up and actually found the company Freely Publishing. And that was in 2011. So it's a bit actually more than more than 10 years ago now. But uh, even then for the first, I don't know, five years, I guess it was very much something we did on our free time on, on weekends and, and evenings and, and things. And we all had other day jobs. So it was very much, uh, and that, that only changed in the last five years, I think, when we started transferring over to actually doing this uh, a few of us so um, I've got two follow-up questions to that the first one is um, is there significance to the name free league publishing that you have I guess so um, free league is actually a, a faction uh, in in the game Coriolis which is one of the first games oh, okay. that we published and the reason we chose that 
it's it's a long convoluted story but basically in, in uh, the the company that i mentioned that we took over from uh, back 10 years ago they were called team yanring and or iron ring and they had in they were their that name came from the original mutant game that i mentioned and uh, so when we took over from them we wanted to do a bit of an homage to them and in their game because coriolis first edition was made by them they had a faction called free league or free Ligan in swedish so that's why yeah. we took a name from the in an in-world in-game name from that game and that's why it ended up being free league Thomas, I remember uh, reading in the intro section to the Coriolis, Coriolis book that uh, that was an RPG that got you back into uh, uh, gaming. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, th- that was I, I, I was a I never left completely, but I was definitely from I don't know mid '90s until early mid 2000s. I was just sort of watching from a distance. I didn't play much. I still mm-hmm. sort of kept up with things, but I was busy doing other things. Moved around and there was just, you know, life got in the way basically. But then around the mid uh, 2000s, I got back in for a number of different reasons. And I think one of the main reasons is that uh, this company that I mentioned, this publisher, Yanring and the Iron Ring, they published first a new version of Mutant, which was my first game. Uh, and 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 that just drew me back in. And then they published Coriolis, the first edition of Coriolis. These were both of these games were only in Swedish. I think they published Mutant in '03 and then Coriolis in '07 or something. That those two games really uh, pulled me back in, and also their why Free League formed because that was in the community around those games is where I met up with the other three people. Uh, we were four starting out in Free League, and they we were all kind of just fans and freelancers uh very cool so um you said that you guys have been doing this full-time for or some of you've been doing this full-time for about you know five years um what um what gave you the push to jump into this full-time i mean i i, I think i saw that you're married have two cats right something like yeah, that. yeah and yeah. uh and uh so i mean you know you you got to put food on the table and, and yeah. the gaming industry can sometimes be a cruel mistress that way oh yeah so um so what what made you be able to like jump in jump in full full force yeah it was basically a i don't know step-by-step process for me personally i think for for mm-hmm. all of us that uh, we didn't i didn't go from another job full-time to this full-time it was basically uh, I actually worked as a journalist. That was my pro- professional background for 15 years. Uh, but then I got a chance uh, to work in the computer games industry because of different... I did I did some of that stuff on my free time. And I had the RPGs on my free time and Freely had started going. And then I got a chance uh, to be an editor at a video game company. So that's actually my transition into gaming. I, I, I okay. got a job at a video game company. And that from there the transition over to just, uh, you know, fully going full, full free league. That was a staggered process where I kind of worked. I started doing like uh, one day a week free league. And then I started doing halftime and kind of piece step by step. And then eventually it was just like, well, let's just, you know, full time for now. And then and we'll see how it goes. But yeah, it was definitely a, a bit scary and a bit of, you know, a leap of faith <laughs> to actually do this and not have another, you know, job to come back to necessarily and uh yeah so we were i guess back then three people who did that uh and we all went from you know having you know step by step really into it and uh yeah it's still scary sometimes you know to because it's been going well so far but like you say games industry is an awful place to be so it's uh yeah it's, yeah it's interesting well, you guys are doing uh, really, really great stuff, and uh, we've noticed that you've picked up some some kind of big IP franchises lately. Like you've got uh, Alien that um, you know came out recently. Uh, you've got the One Ring, so you've got the you know uh, license for some of the Lord of the Rings material, and obviously uh, Blade Runner. Um, how? Um, you know how how did how did you kind of come into those types of things? Was it through to like your success on Tales of the Loop? I guess so. I mean, we that was uh, Tales of the Loop was our third game uh, internationally. We had first we did okay. a translation of of Mutant, the Mutant Year Zero, which was released mm-hmm. in twenty fourteen, 
Uh, and that got us started and it, it got a good reception. So that's kind of got the ball rolling internationally. Back then we also worked, we still do work with Modifius, a, a British company, but back then they were kind of you know, helping us, you know, finding our way in, in, in the market. And then we did the new version of Coriolis and then Tales from the Loop. And I think step by step that kind of built us up or, or our, and I, I guess our reputation and, and Tales from the Loop was probably the biggest hit of the three. And what mm -hmm. happened after that is, is a number of, of coincidences and, 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 and good just fortune that uh, I met up with uh, a guy called Joe Lefavi, who, who runs a business called Genuine Entertainment. And he does, among many other things, he's a producer and a brand manager. And he had basically he has the right connections and he knows his way around Hollywood and can broker these kinds of licensing. Uh, deals. We had made a few, I mean, uh, we have sort of dipped our toe into it a little bit earlier in, in licensing, but I think after meeting Joe, and I think Joe heard of us through Tales from the Loop, I think that's how he yeah. learned about us. And he really thought that was an excellent game, uh, so I guess. So we kind of met up around that, and then we started discussing with him. And just that just a, like a week or two before that we had just had a brainstorm which was without knowing about joe uh, we had an, just a brainstorm for fun just that uh, we just had a night out uh, with the free league what would be like the dream licenses if we would do like licensed rpgs what would be the you know the big which would for us be the best ones which would we be the most passionate about and and uh, both alien and blade runner were on the very short you know top list uh, uh, during yeah. that discussion so yeah we discussed that with with joe and 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 we made a pitch together to the uh, the license owners of those two franchises and it just kind of grew grew from there very uh very good very good so um one of the uh, I mean, I, I guess if I were to sit down with someone and said, what's your short list of IAPs that you want to do? <laughs> I think Lord of the Rings, Alien, and Blade Runner would be on my very short list yeah. too, right? Yeah. <laughs> the Lord of the Rings so much is cool uh, actually a bit, it's a completely different story. That did not go through Joe or anything like that. That's actually a very different story. We met up with uh, Francesco Nepitello, who did the first edition of The One Ring 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, at Essen Spiel, which is the big games fair in Germany. Uh, and uh, right. it turned out that he really liked our games and we really liked his games and we just hit it off. And then it, by chance, it turned out that he was, for a variety of reasons that I, I guess I won't get into, was looking for a new publisher for the second edition of the game. And then that just, so we, that was a very different process. But, oh, very but cool. uh, yeah, that's yeah. how that turned out to, to end up with, with us as well, which we're, of course, happy about. Yeah, I've got the one ring starter set staring at me right now. Um, and I'm very, very excited to run it. I just got it the other day. So, uh, yeah, very excited, very excited. Now, um, what's interesting is that not only are you guys publishing uh, your own, you know, um, books and, and manuals and things like that, but you have come up with your own system that you have used in uh, many of your games. It's called the Year Zero system. Um, what what kind of pushed you to design your own system? Like, why not kind of reskin some of these things on like a, a you know a five E game engine or or you know some other uh, like a some other RPG system that that already exists out there that people are familiar with? Why why come up with your own? I guess a number of different reasons. I think. Um... This we never set out to to design a new system, generic system that we would be using in multiple games. Like it turned out, that was never the intent. Starting out, mm -hmm. basically, we started tinkering with the system. I think as I mean, that's also about ten years ago or, or more, uh, around the time Free League was founded, because uh, we were tinkering on a post-apocalyptic game that we wanted to call Year Zero. Uh, and we just fooled around with mechanics and, and uh, it's also perhaps related to the fact that in, in Sweden D&D &D is big and it's I think now at least the biggest game in here also but traditionally D&D &D is not as dominant I guess as in, in other areas so that was I don't think we ever even contemplated using a 5e version or, a, or, a, or like whatever that was back then another 
Yeah. But anyway, I don't think we ever did, even contemplated going down that route. So some and and I was also very much influenced by that kind of indie movement, the forge movement back in the in in the early two thousands. So I think the uh, this uh, game system that we designed for the mutant year zero, the year zero game that actually later became mutant year zero because we didn't have the mutant is also a license, so we didn't have that license until a bit later. Turned out to be Mutant Year Zero. This yeah. rule system was completely designed for that game. We never even contemplated that we'd be using it in any other game. That was never the intent. It just kind of turned out that way. And that's after Mutant Year Zero was out. Uh, we started working on Coriolis, our version, which is the, was the second edition. As I mentioned, the first edition came out in the 07 or something by another publisher. And uh, we tried out a different, few different systems for Coriolis. We just thought about using the Fate system. We had various ideas. Right, right, right. But right. then nothing really worked. And we felt, why not just try the same system as in Mutant Year Zero? Just see if it, that works. I mean, then, and, and we felt it kind of did. Uh, and then we had like two games, both of them with the same kind of core rules engine. And then when we started working on Taste from the Loop, we felt, well, maybe just try that for this one as well. But of course, tweaking it, changing it, they're all quite, they have some, some similarities, obviously, in, in the core mechanics, but they're also quite different mm -hmm. from each other. So that's important, I think, to even if we have like a house rule system that we really change it around for the game in question. So that really fits with the theme and the style of, of the game. It's not one, one system fits all. So, but that's basically how it kind of grew. It was never an intention it was never a big plan to make a big, you know, rule system for many games. That was never, ever part of the plan starting out. So it just kind of one thing led to another. And it, it, it seems like your business model doesn't require anyone to have bought any other previous games in the library to get into one of your games and enjoy it, which, you know, we see a lot with, with certain Certain companies are like, well, you know, you can match these three games up and it's all cross-compatible. Isn't that hunky-dory? But um, looking over your library, everything is so vivid and unique and solid in and of its own self. You know, they kind of stand um, as, as, as their own independent art pieces. And so it's not real. There, it doesn't seem like there's either a business reason or an artistic reason to have one generic system that you just keep recycling over and over again. You're, you're customizing it for, yeah. for the IP, which yeah. I think is great. Yeah, that's, that's, and I think that's key really, because I think rules are, I mean, they're not everything, obviously there is a lot going into an RPG, but I think the rules have to work with, with the style of play and the stories that you want to tell. And, and, and I think not any one rule system can do that. You need to, uh, adapt them to to the game in, in question. Now, of course, that has led to some questions, especially now we we get a lot of, of questions why uh, the system in Blade Runner is a bit different from Alien, for example, when when the two franchises have some similarities. Uh, so, um, but the answer is is again the same that we feel that even though there are some similarities, there are also quite big differences in the kind of tone and style of the game. What you'll be doing, the kind of you know, atmosphere of the game is different and that requires a different version of the rules engine. I think that uh, you've, you know, you've shown over your books that you can kind of adapt this system. And, you know, me reading, I spent about um, last few days on a plane and I grabbed the alien core rule book with me and was just, you know, prob I probably had about eight hours sitting on planes pouring through this book, uh, just totally digging the art and everything, but also reading the system and thinking, you know, the system is so easy to understand. You know, you just, you roll in D6, you're fishing for sixes and hoping not for ones on those stress dice. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, reading the little blurb that's on the Kickstarter and listening to some of the other, you know, uh, interviews you've done, uh, it seems that you've simplified maybe the dice rolling mechanic in Blade Runner um, and kind of what you just said, was that uh, to kind of align with the theme of this book? I guess so, yeah. It's, it's, uh, what we've done in Blade Runner is that we're, instead of, I mean, most of the other games uh, use a dice pool of D6s, uh, whereas in Blade Runner, and also in Twilight 2000, actually, it's based on a, a rolling two dice, which, but they might not be D6s. They might instead, instead you, mm -hmm. you rate 
uh, your competence and your attribute or skill by choosing a bigger uh, die with more sides on it instead of rolling more dice. And that changes things around a little bit. But I think the reason we wanted to go that route for Blade Runner is that well, that it's an investigative game. It's, it's the core gameplay is investigations. And that means lots of handouts, lots of clues, lots of, yeah, it can be lots of notes, maps. And it's, you know, it, it kind of, when we play test this thing, you basically fill the table with, with handouts and, and you kind of have to, you know, think through which, uh, where to find the evidence, where to go next. And, uh, and another big part of Blade Runner is the, like the character development, the kind of introspective quality almost of, of a development character and we felt that having rolling big dice pools uh, on top of that would just kind of be distracting a little bit so we wanted a, a game system where, where basically fewer dice that took a bit less space on the table a bit less uh, headspace for the players so we wanted a more slim down version really and mm -hmm. that's why we tried that out for Blade Runner it was an experiment I'd say but we felt internally that it worked well so that's why we uh, went with it Okay, that's that's cool. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, let's move away from the mechanic a little bit and 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 kind of think about the the actual material, the setting. Uh, as we were kind of coming up with questions, Jess and I were thinking, you know, Blade Runner really is kind of this uh, rich dystopian world, lots of theme and feel that kind of sets it uniquely against the backdrop. Um, it seemed, you know, but a lot of the source material really that we have today focuses on Blade Runners and replicants that are inside of this this world. Uh, so, you you know, you've talked a little bit, you revealed what some of the archetypes or uh, kind of classes are that players can be inside this world. Rather than kind of ask for kind of a repeated list of all those, maybe the question is which one, which maybe two archetypes do you think are the most unique in this rpg from other rpgs uh good uh, good question um i would say i mean there are some that are reasonably familiar but there are some of them that are a bit more uh unusual i guess you could say i think yeah. one of them is the doxy that's a term that's, that, that comes from the Blade Runner uh, universe. It's basically, uh, well, it can be a social, uh, but it's almost like an infiltrator. It can do, yeah, it's, it's more of like a social character, an infiltrator that can do all kinds of espionage, you know, almost assassinations, almost that kind of a thing. It's not, so that, that is, has a unique Blade Runner twist to it. Okay, cool. Then, of course, you have the, the inspector is not that unique in of course you can have that in in other games too but i think this it's a very blade runner thing the inspector archetype is very much your deckard or k type of character and mm -hmm. of course that's very very blade runner and maybe not that it exists that kind of character exists in other rpgs for sure but maybe it's definitely very typical blade runner thing also very iconic right yes. Yes. yeah yeah. So a uh, question. <laughs> this, so this is an important question that we were kind of tongue in cheek asking, and we're curious what your thought is on this. We, we've played various systems based off of, you know, big IPs in the past. And a lot of times when people jump into these big IPs, they're super excited about reliving, you know, the IPs as they know them. A, a big example is the Star Wars. And I don't know if you ever played Star Wars Saga Edition, but... A problem with Star Wars Saga Edition was you either were a Jedi class or you were nothing in that game. Mm. And so kind of the question is, you know, what have you guys done or have you have you kind of addressed uh, the Blade Runner RPG that's going to make or emphasize or, or try to help incentivize people to do something other than just being an inspector because they just want to be that Deckard? Right. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, we obviously trying to make all of the archetypes uh, interesting and, and, and worthwhile to play. So I certainly think that you will not be superior to others, I mean, mechanically or anything like that, by choosing the inspectors. There is no mechanical incentive. Okay. okay. Uh, I think uh, players will react differently. Some, I think, will want to relive that Deckard, you know, fantasy, and, and they will probably choose the inspector just on account of that. But I think there's a lot more. I mean, you have, for example, someone like Gaff in the uh, the original Blade Runner film. You, uh, we have an archetype called the city speaker, which is very much a Gaff type of person. And I think other players can enjoy being something a bit off, something a bit different. I think that 
that is also very Blade Runner, all of these strange, odd characters that kind of break the, 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 the predicted mold. And I think that's very much something you can play in this game also. So I think that will attract maybe not all, but definitely some, some players. Cool. Yeah, that, I think it'll be fun. I'm excited to explore some of those other archetypes when the when it comes out. And then I guess uh, I, also to add to that, uh, one choice that we made early on that we have been asked quite a bit is that can or do you have to be a Blade Runner? Uh, can I play something else in this universe? And uh, our design choice for the core game for now is that all of the players are Blade Runners, and that also puts that helps to level the playing field. Everyone's a Blade Runner, so everyone can have that. And it would be a bit strange game if you had one Blade Runner and the other player characters were something different. I mean, I think that would have very right. made for a very disjointed and strange game. So I think having everyone be a Blade Runner, it, it does mean some limitations, but I think there's so much to explore within that field that I think that helps the game and make, make it much more focused and, and also levels the playing field for, for the players. Yeah, I think that's a, a great choice because otherwise you've got an android designer or an animal designer who who that character may be looking for a different kind of arc that's not following the Blade Runner around and just being a sidekick. And that was kind of one of my questions is, is you know, do, do you feel like um, with the balance of the different archetypes, um, are do in the play testing did it feel like everyone had their spot because i think with the the movies we we basically see the two main characters and they're kind of the tent pole of everything that happens of all the action and i think sometimes in 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 rpgs based on ips you can say well well clearly there's a group of three or four people so there's some obvious archetypes did you all have to construct the other art archetypes in in ways in it, creatively did you have to come up with stuff or did you did you have access or, or were you able to access you know other materials besides the movies like do androids dream of um, electric sheep or anything like that? right yeah i mean we did uh, i think uh, the films are uh, are obviously a, a key source here but there's also yeah. been quite a bit of other um, publications uh, recently that that also include the the comics and some video games and the short films that were made around the time before 2049 came out and, right, and uh, right. the That's recent cool. anime uh, black lotus and some other things so there's definitely been more media that have been that we have been drawing upon and that also helps uh, a lot to flesh out the world and also to inspire other types of characters uh, that that you can play i mean uh, also the old video game actually from from the 90s has also been uh, <laughs> yeah, a source I remember of inspiration that. So and, and you, there, there's also a bunch of, of characters and, and types of people that we kind of fall upon for, for these types. So hopefully players will find them all worthwhile and all interesting to play. Um, on that note, uh, with all the material you've pulled from, uh, and did, did you guys in the setting and i know that um your your focus has been uh kind of mainly game design and i'm sure overall focus and i know you have a teammate that's focused on doing the setting did did you guys pull from any of the kind of original parts of uh do android stream of electric sheep like uh you know mercerism or a focus on you know uh cherishing animals as pets uh I'll even throw in their mood organs, which mm. happens early on in, in the book. Is any of that kind of stuff in here? Or is it really more focused on kind of the pop culture movie? Right. Yeah. First off, I'll just mention, because I think it's worth mentioning, that uh, I'm basically, like you said, I'm, I'm mostly focused on rules, but also the overall project management and the overall game structure and that kind of stuff. Of course, I'm invested in the setting stuff also, so I'm sure. Not, but but uh, <laughs> right. the guy who's done most of that is is the same uh, Joe Lafavi, who also the one I mentioned before, who actually made the the agreement happen. So and he's very much super invested in Blade Runner, and he's also the mm. setting writer for for the Blade Runner. Uh, very much um, two big roles in this in this. Uh, project also just wanted to mention that but yeah right. like you said uh, the 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 book the the um, novel by philip k dick i think i love that it's 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 it has so much interesting stuff in it technically uh our, the license as such does not cover the book uh, it's so it, ah, it's not okay. the case that we can draw or have drawn 
on specific elements from the book because that that the license that we have all of these licensed rpgs they are covered by by a license and and the license does not cover that novel so there is that means characters and details like that are not part of of what we have been able to draw upon we but on the other hand there is so much in the films and and the other media that i mentioned that we have we have plenty but uh, of course the uh, the novel also is you know it, there's a lot from the novel that has also made it in some form or another into the film so i definitely think you can trace that you know the deep sure yeah in 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 many ways i think it's interesting uh, just reading the book, I think the way the artificial animals are, are, are portrayed in Blade Runner, they're mostly like a backdrop thing that you, they're, they're yeah. there, but they're not really part of the story that much in, in the film. But then reading the, 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 uh, the Philip K. Dick novel, you kind of get a, basically an explanation or, or then you really understand where they, you, you, it explains how and why the animals are, are such a key part of this. I think, it's they're certainly part of the you know deep the backdrop and dna so i think you can certainly trace things to that source if you would want to but specific elements like names and, and stuff they are not part of the game so um it's it's interesting uh, you, you know you're talking about a lot of the source material and um we watched the uh blade runner black lotus um series that had come out right the the joint cooperation between country crunchy roll and adult swim and um what what i liked about it um i don't think it was a perfect series but <clears throat> excuse me what i did like about it was that um it did expand kind of the setting uh of uh blade runner quite a bit and um i think i saw when i was looking at your Kickstarter um, that we had, there was a picture in there that looked just like the character Doc from um, from from the series. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, there are a few elements like that uh, that are we have drawn from Black Lotus and other sources. Uh, uh, Doc is also actually in Twenty Forty Nine, so he's he's uh, he's been around. Yeah. Uh, Doc Badger, but but yeah, there are other things, other details that we have. Uh, I agree with you that I think the the Black Lotus expands the universe in interesting ways, and we have uh, drawn upon that also. I think uh, we uh, have some, we have something called the Spinner Cycle, for example, which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Just as a detail, and that that is comes from there. There are certainly that was elements. a pretty awesome moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there. That's uh, certainly also been uh, something we have been drawing upon because really, what we want to do is to create and help create uh, a cohesive universe that kind of carries through, and and you can be and that can feel consistent to players. So that's important to us, obviously, to, to keep it consistent. Yeah, and so, I mean, with that, obviously you're drawing from Black Lotus uh, a little bit. You're drawing from the movies. Uh, you said you were a little kind of restricted on what you could because of licensing from, from the novel. Um, I know I know you guys are working with Alcon Entertainment. I think that this is where the license is coming from. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But, um, uh, like, were there any kind of, um, like, restrictions or guidelines that, like, when, when you're working with this license, um, other than, you know, what you already told us about, that you kind of had, you were kind of bounded by? Well, uh, I don't know, no specific restrictions as a, like a rule book or something, but of course we've had discussions uh -huh. with them continuously. I mean, basically we pitch what we wanted to do, our idea for, for this game, and they had feedback on that. And then we presented them with the main setting text and they had feedback on that. And we had, it was very much a back and forth because even though this is a, uh, many many canonical sources are out there. There's of course some some areas where which are not that carefully explained or in any detail in any previous publication. And of course we touch upon. So that meant we we and but basically it's been the form of a of a discussion with them, and it's been you know fruitful and and uh, we've been able to to agree on on most things I guess. But then there's always things that well we think it should be a bit more like that or that idea doesn't quite fly. And of course, and then we have we have a discussion back and forth and 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 to uh, come up with with a game and, and and a description of the universe that everyone think, thinks is good and that feels consistent with other media and and that they are happy with and that that's just basically how licensing works in this. 
Yeah. Uh, did you did you face similar things with like the alien uh, licensing where, you know, I mean, you basically proposed what you wanted and there. It sounds like they're just want to make sure it's consistent with like the other forms of media out there regarding their franchise. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's very much the same. And, and with uh, the one ring, it's, it's it's basically works the same way for every license like this. I mean, of course, they're main concern is as that this will be a good they don't want a bad product out there with their with their, right. with their brand right. on it obviously and and that it is consistent with whatever else has been published in within the property so i mean and that is important obviously and we take it that very seriously a thought on that so is there going to be any kind of juicy lore in this book that uh, we will have not gotten from other sources in this universe? Uh, I guess so. Um, most of it has been, I mean, I think we we have tried to connect dots and, and but yeah, definitely. And I think Joe would be even better in a better position to answer this question in detail. But but yeah, there there's definitely some some of some fill in the blanks uh, mm -hmm. ha has been done for sure uh, but still we we try to draw on what's out there and connect the dots rather than add something completely new and big and different because we still want this to be consistent but yes there will be new stuff in there for sure well that's exciting because i these rpg books sometimes make their way back into the hands of of folks who are writing films too, um, as a place where that you know, as a as a solid tome that brings a lot of threads together. So that that's always exciting to write in in an, an IP, knowing that you're contributing um, some elements to the IP. Um, kind of at from a more broad perspective, you know, what is what is working on Blade Runner mean to your team? You know, are were you um, is this a passion for you, for you all? Were you excited to jump into this? Were you excited to um, tackle um, the setting? And um, what's it like to to be to get to have an opportunity to to add to contribute and to synthesize a universe like this from from a writer's perspective? Yeah, it's been you know fantastic. I think for me personally, it's it's probably I mean, every project that we do is important. I don't want to, you know, downrate anything else, but I definitely, personally, this has been a big, big passion project for me. And I think Blade Runner as a property has always been, has a very special place for me ever since I saw the first film on a grainy VHS copy uh, back in the mid 80s sometime. And I was far too young to really understand much of it, but I was totally fascinated even back then. And then it just stayed with me. So that has being able to work with this this franchise and the, this this world has been you know amazing opportunity and, and and great fun and but also big responsibility because i mean we want to do every game you know well and and, and it, but this one is a big feels like a big responsibility to get it right so that's uh but a big uh, you know it's it's been it's been a fantastic journey and and also working with you know i know joe feels much the same way he's uh if possible an even bigger you know fanatic on on the topic of blade runner than me if that's possible uh and also the designers i know that the the artists designers that have worked on this it's it's been you know i think a passion project for for all of us uh i think doing licensed games i think the key to get it right and do it well is that it has to start with a passion for that particular uh, mm, property. Yeah. I don't think uh, doing a, you know, a branded game or a franchise game for, a, for something you don't feel that strongly about, then I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think it's going to turn out well. So I think at least for us, it, it needs to be, we won't do ever any franchised games that we don't feel passionate about. And uh, Blade Runner is definitely, definitely a, a passion project. That's fantastic. I mean, and that passion really comes through. I mean, just in looking in the artwork alone, I don't think we've spent enough time, certainly on this call, um, talking about what a great job your um, free league publishing has done with all of the art direction and all of your properties. They're just absolutely magnificent, top to bottom. And 
the art direction is so important in an RPG for the immersion um, to get the GM's head in the right space, to get the player's heads in the right space. So I just, it's not really a question. It's more more of a statement that um, uh, after looking through your your library and really understanding that there's 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 not a there's not a single book that you all have put out that that's that's below a tier when it comes to art direction. So I just really want to applaud the just the fantastic work that you've done there. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always been something we've aspired to do. I think uh, for for us, uh, an RPG really to make it really sing, you need. You need obviously good mechanics, but you also need good art direction, art, and, and it has to be, I think it has to have all of that. At least that's how we see it. It needs to be mm-hmm. good in all these departments. If it, it, It's not enough to just have one of them be good. But so that's graphic design and, and art has been, you know, a key thing for us from, from the very start. And, and to be honest, while we were talking, I, I just backed this on Kickstarter. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and I told the guys I wasn't because I have another dark future gritty RPG on my on my shelf. Yeah. That I don't that I don't play, and I'm like, uh, I'm not going to miss this Blade mm. Runner boat. Where's Where's my credit card? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I'll second I'll second what Dan said right there about the um, the books that you guys have been putting out. Um, you know, I saw this firsthand with the Alien Corp rulebook that uh, that we got. You know, just opening it up and seeing like the full page art that you have, right? The the spread and then the text is kind of overlaid on that. Um, really gives an immersive feel. I I've had plenty of RPGs where you know you'll have like a little like um, art art design thing that's in the corner of a page but you know it's a white page with lots of text and then there's kind of like it feels like the art's a little shoehorned in um with the way that you guys have designed your books and your products like it it feels immersive is is exactly what dan said and uh you know i get i feel myself getting sucked in because like that artwork is literally behind the words and it just serves as a reinforcement to what your what kind of world you're getting into when you crack that book open yeah i mean that's that's the idea so i mean i think you know it's great that it kind of works <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. really we want to uh, you can't let the art take over completely you need to have some text also but i think that they have to work together and and that can be done in various ways but definitely to the the purpose of the whole thing is immersion so i think that the the art, art direction the graphic design and the illustrations and the text all have to kind of work together to do that and it's reflection of your level of taste as a company like you have a very high taste level um i don't want to throw any other company under the bus but there's a game i'm playing with a group right now that is on a a, a very popular ip and I'm flipping through the core rule book and sometimes something jumps out and it just, it's just weak. It's C level art. It's like, Oh man, this, they're really leveraging the fact that they knew I would spend money on this IP and they didn't have the taste level to, to edit and, or, or to go back to the artist and say, we need something a little bit better than this, you know, but it, uh, looking at your work, uh, there's, there's nothing that's subpar at all. Mm-hmm. I think a, a, th- a thing that we try to do also is that we try to keep art consistent and if possible only use one or perhaps a very small number of artists in a single book or game uh, because I think I, we have learned that we feel that it's, it makes the look much more consistent and that also helps immersion. If you have 20 different artists with each a little bit of a different style that will kind of yeah. be jarring and break immersion even though each individual piece might be perfectly good uh, I think so we try to work with you know we work with many different artists but we try to not have them all in the same book basically so that's that's one right. one of the things that we that we do yeah that's great well thank you for for speaking with us this has been a really fascinating conversation so thank you. Um, uh, and, and we're excited to uh, roll up our sleeves and spend more time on the table with some of these free league games that um, that, that we have on hand or that, or that are coming coming in the mail when the, when certain things are, are completed. Great. 
Yep. Uh, so Blade Runner, the RPG, it's on Kickstarter. It has one more week left. Uh, we encourage everybody to get out there. Go sign up for it. I feel like your uh, reward levels are excellent, right? I, you get a lot for, for what you're backing there. And um, there's some really exciting things about it. So if you haven't already yet, our listeners, please go out and back this project. I don't think that, uh, you know, I know Jason's backed it, Dan's backed it, and now I feel compelled to back it too, like the three of us, even though the three <laughs> of us will be playing it together, right? Like now we all have to back it. So, um, you know, it'll it'll be great. So, it's, so go it's ahead. It's funny because we typically spread our backing since we all game together. One yeah, guy yeah. gets this system, the other guy but now we're all three getting the system. Now, now we all have. Now we're all in it to win it. We're right. Sold. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, go out and back it, guys. Uh, Tomas, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's yeah. been such a pleasure to speak with you. I I hope that uh, in the future, when you are putting out some more stuff, that we can have you on and and uh, share the good word uh, of what you guys are doing because we. Really Really love everything that you guys have been doing at Free League Publishing. So it, it, it's been fantastic. Great, thank you so much. No problem. So, uh, yep, we're going to be putting this episode out here real soon. So uh, everybody who's listening to it, give us a like and a share. Um, send it to your friends. Send it. Send them to the the Kickstarter. Obviously, uh, check it out because a lot of great things going on. And uh, Tomas, thank you again. And everybody, have a have a great day. See ya. Later.